This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. I don't know about you, but I'm a sucker for a novel of ideas that somehow manages to rip along like a perpetual motion machine when that novel also involves hoaxes and untempered literary ambition, I start to cut myself off from human contact to spend time exclusively with the book. Such is the case with the debut novel by my guest this week, Caitlin Barish. Caitlin's A Novel Obsession asks a grand question about the making of literature and about art more generally. How much should be sacrificed at the altar of a great story? The novel comes to its answer in the compelling narrative of one woman's obsessive commitment to finding her own great story by invading the life of her romantic rival, one deception at a time. I can't say enough about how much I loved this novel taking over my waking life for the three days that I burned through its pages. I can, however, tell you that Caitlin is a wonderful and clever thinker about her own work. I so enjoyed getting a chance to ask her about her process and the ideas that she took on so fearlessly in her debut. Let's start the show and welcome Caitlin. Welcome back to Burned by Books. I'm about to ruin your weekend plans. Cancel the dinner party. Wait, we don't have those anymore. We'll cancel the Zoom drinks or the Netflix binge or maybe the walk in the almost spring sun because Caitlin Barish's A Novel Obsession is going to own your life for the next couple of days. Caitlin's debut novel introduces us to Naomi, a smart, pretty girl solidly placed in a New York life with a great Welsh boyfriend, family-subsidized housing, and plenty of time for pursuing a writer's life in her 20s. But Naomi's nagging insecurities about her writerly chops 
and her suspicion that Caleb, the boyfriend, might still harbor feelings for his ex, Rosemary, are starting to unwind the narrative she had been spinning for herself. Enter the plan. Involve herself fully in the life of the ex. Stalk her social media. Find ways to concoct natural-seeming interactions and become Rosemary's bosom buddy. Plumb her depths as a friend with a sympathetic ear and determine whether she is truly a threat to her inchoate love. The bonus, or maybe the rationale, is that great novels are drawn from real experiences, or maybe stolen is the better word. And what is more engaging than a love triangle with a jealous partner? Fodder for the novel, security and love, what could go wrong? A novel obsession takes us deep into the psyche of a wounded young woman, driven by the possibilities of great art, but riven with the insecurities and anxieties of an untethered youth. This is a book about sacrifices, those we make for art and love, but it is also an unblinking look at the society of spectacle, of social media's unchecked, all-seeing eye, and the cost of our constant visibility. Caitlin has crafted a story that is unafraid to ask us how different we really believe we are from the base instincts that lead Naomi down her terrible rabbit holes. Raven Lilani calls it a study of fixation, performance, and the exquisite agony of anonymity. But it is also a roller coaster of a read that you won't want to exit. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thank you so much for that incredible introduction. And yes, I do apologize for ruining any weekends. <laughs> um, I will take full responsibility. You you certainly ruined my well not ruined because I enjoyed the <laughs> hell out of it but um, I found myself called to the book again and again in in the best kind of way in the in the way that we want literature to call to us but I was I, I was thinking I'd love to have listeners get a feel for this anxiety provoking creepiness um, with which Naomi's obsession for her boyfriend's ex Rosemary grows would you be willing to read a little bit of one of their first encounters. And just setting the scene, this is Naomi's interaction with Rosemary at a coffee shop. And it's a meant it's meant to appear natural, but has obviously been crafted entirely by Naomi. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely read from that. And just as an aside, this is very, very early in the book. So I'm definitely throwing readers right in. Um, so here we go. Two days later, on my day off, I return to the corner where Rosemary works and locate a bench where I can read. I'm carrying a book she edited called One of the Herd, an essay collection by a woman who grew up on a Wyoming cattle farm. I took it from a box of forthcoming releases in the storage room at the bookstore where I work. The publication date is still a few weeks away, but I've promised myself I'll skim quickly and carefully without damaging the pages or the spine and then slide it back into the box before it goes on sale. I want to claim this physical manifestation of her, if only for a short while. Between surveillance of the building's revolving doors, I managed to digest 32 pages before Rosemary emerges, rummaging in her New Yorker tote for her Ray-Bans. She turns west at the corner. I slip the book into my own tote, its illustration of a, spectable, a bespectacled woman carrying a teetering stack of Jane Austen novels, just in time to watch the back of Rosemary's royal blue cotton dress disappear inside a cafe. I'm thirsty too, I realize, and in need of caffeine, so I follow her inside. Rosemary ponders the chalkboard menu. Does she read every item but then order the usual? 
I peg her as a non-fat latte kind of woman. I'll have an ice dirty chai, please, she tells the barista. That's what I always get, I murmur, more audibly than intended. Rosemary turns. I'm mortified, but also electric. Words bubble up. I rarely see anyone order it, I blurt out, as if to explain. But I know people like it. That's how I found out it existed. I can't seem to stop. Espresso and chai. Furious at the brutal mundaneity of what is now officially our first encounter, I blush a deep crimson. Then Rosemary says, yeah, it's pretty good. Her gaze sweeps over me. Cute tote, by the way. Her voice is raspy, lower than I expected. Alluring. I glance down. Thank you so much. I want to hear her again, but she ducks her head to check her phone, signaling the end of our conversation. The espresso machine gurgles. The barista hands her the chai, Rosemary's fingernails are violet, and then her mouth encircles the straw. I order the same, still vibrating with nervous energy, and step into the bright October sunlight. Rosemary is gone. That's so nice to hear you read that and get a sense of the the tone to bring to Naomi and Rosemary. Um, I, I'm wondering what the inspiration was for a novel with this particular kind of writerly obsession. And how did you find Naomi's voice? Yeah, so two good questions. Um, I feel like, for one, the writerly obsession definitely came out of my own life. At the time that I was writing this, I was definitely struggling with a few different ideas for a novel. And I I, I didn't yet, you know, feel that that click and that gut feeling um, about either of the ideas. And so I think a lot of that anxiety about searching for a story and trying to figure out what was really calling to me and what most excited me uh, had a lot to do with the driving obsession. Um, you know, obviously this book is sort of about two obsessions and her obsession with Rosemary and her obsession with writing. Um, and I think a lot of what was going on in my life uh, helped me at least craft that bit authentically. Um, but yeah, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Oh, I just wanted to know um, whether there was a particular moment where you felt like you kind of had Naomi's voice in particular, uh, yes. because, it, you know, you're, you're, you're drawing a very fine line with her um, where, you know, we're, we're in it with her and at the same time recognizing that this obsession is devouring everything, including much of her kind of rational mind. So I was interested to know when you kind of located it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, you know, it took it took some time. And I'll admit, I feel so before I wrote this novel, I was writing short stories only. This was actually the first novel I ever wrote and finished, um, which is wild to me still. And so I was I was mostly focused on short stories. And I feel like my short stories were in a way circling the themes of the novel before I actually sat down and wrote the novel. Um, and I was kind of honing that that voice um, over and over again in these short stories. And I found, you know, the things about these stories that most excited me were the voice. And the voice seemed to be quite similar um, amidst all these stories, which is perhaps a blessing and a curse. Um, and for the novel, I just knew that I wanted to continue capturing that same voice, but just dial it up to basically 100. Because um, <laughs> I needed her to be like so deeply inside her own consciousness that she was sort of unaware of, or at least 
didn't want to become aware of the ways that others might perceive her um, and the ways that maybe her own rational mind might perceive her. And so it was sort of this burrowing, this constant burrowing into her own sort of darkest thoughts. Um, and I'll admit, you know, at times, while it was very fun to write, it, it was also, you know, distressing to write at times. I had to sort of take a step back, uh, take breaks, <laughs> breathe, eat, drink, sleep, um, <laughs> to make sure I wasn't totally, uh, you know, being haunted by by this voice. Because, yeah, it gets pretty intense. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can absolutely see that. Uh, and, and, you know, it mirrors my own reading of the novel where I did have to take a step back. And, and partly I think that's that you recognize, you know, people who write or who, you know, do art in a way that is consistent and sometimes obsessive, recognize parts of Naomi and themselves. <laughs> and then I think have to say, wait a second, is that me? Do I do I go that far? But I love the the metaphor of burrowing. That's a really I, I think it's a wonderful way to understand what it is she's doing. And she's both burrowing kind of literally into the depths of social media, but she's also burrow, burrowing into a kind of like a subconscious level that she can exist without self-examination. I think that's a really nice way to put it. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so without sounding too much like a hot take, I feel like the real love affair for me in the novel, although love is perhaps the wrong word, is Naomi's obsession for Rosemary and a different kind of obsession that Rosemary will ultimately have for Naomi. And frankly, Caleb seems a little bit of a milk toast for either of these women. <laughs> Naomi puts it all out there in what I think of as, as a single white female moment. Quote, more material is required now, more and more and more. If I can't have Rosemary in the flesh, I'll possess her on the page. Why were you interested in dramatizing this kind of all-consuming infatuation as a kind of competitor to romantic love? Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot as I was writing. Um, and I think, well, for one, I had just read so many um, novels and stories about sort of obsessive love for a man uh, or just for the, you know, the the sex that you're interested in. Um, and in that way, I felt like oftentimes those novels were ones I loved and found so interesting and ultimately were so much more about the characters that were obsessing than ever than it, than it ever was about the objects of their obsessions. So I was trying to think, okay, well, if you can learn so much about a character from how they obsess and what they obsess over, I wanted to sort of turn that on its head and do something a little bit different um, by having that be this sort of competitive obsession um, with another woman. And I feel like, I'm trying to phrase this in my own mind correctly, but there's something about romantic love that almost feels more quantifiable than, than a sort of uh, competitive and or like intellectual obsession that she has mm -hmm. with Rosemary. Mm -hmm. I think she really admires Rosemary's mind or at least begins to as she gets to know her obviously is both titillated and frightened by the things that they have in common and equally frightened by the things that they don't um, in the mm -hmm. ways that she sort of wants to be her. And so I was trying to think like, how do you measure that kind of love? Cause so often when something involves like a sexual desire, it is easier to sort of to measure out like if that is ever requited. Whereas when mm -hmm. it's, 
when it's between two women that are not attracted to each other sexually, but there is that charge between them. Um, I wanted to try to just explore like the many ways that can manifest. And it just, I found that so interesting to me specifically just because I feel like I've always coveted, you know, the um, the friendship of women that I admire. And I think occasionally I, I would hope that most of my friends would be like, no, Katie, our relationships are really normal, I promise. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, there's definitely that sense throughout my life of really trying to impress other women, try to figure them out um and yeah i just always i've always been fascinated by interesting women in my life um, and i wanted to sort of explore that in an incredibly uh escalated way on the page <laughs> the, i like the idea of an unquantifiable obsessive love that's a that's a great way to put it there's clearly a long history of the relationship between obsession and writing Writers are eavesdroppers, spies, and even thieves, stealing bits of conversation and ideas from the world around them. Is that part of what drew you to this conflagration of writerly ambitions and sexual-slash-romantic jealousy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like, at least in this book, and, and how I see it manifesting in real life, is that oftentimes your obsessions sort of fuel one another um, and throw, throw extra tinder on the fire. And in a sense, like, more sexual and platonic desires that she feels are also just speaking a lot to um, like her own sense of worth. I think both of these obsessions mm -hmm. ultimately sort of result in her trying to figure out like if she's living a life worth reading about, worth writing about. And she feels like, okay, well, if she can sort of possess the objects of her, of her obsessions, she can write that book, she can, she can win over Rosemary and win over Caleb or keep him, um, that sort of her life will be figured out <laughs> in a sense. And I don't think that one obsession, at least not on the page, not on the book that I've written, I don't think one obsession could exist without the other. Mm. Um, and I didn't think it would be as interesting of a book if I hadn't done that. And just as a sort of aside about the development of the book is originally in the first draft, in the first draft of the book, Rosemary wasn't a writer at all, which obviously shouldn't oh, be. Oh, it's so important for <laughs> her to so be a writer. Important. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, there was something about the book that wasn't working. Like I was sending it out. I was getting really positive responses from agents, but they were saying, you know, something something isn't quite clicking in the second half because I was sort of going off the rails and Naomi was pursuing someone else. And it's a whole long story. But essentially, I realized, of course, Rosemary would be a writer. Of course, Naomi would feel not only this competitive edge um, with Rosemary because of that, but also like as writer to writer, really admire what she does um, and really respect it. Um, and I wanted there to be that, those equal amounts of respect and um, and resentment and envy um, that I hope sort of is on the page. And then it allowed you to, to enter in the ultimate like naked vulnerability of sharing work with another writer and yeah. that, those must have been really fun to to write oh they absolutely were yeah and I, I sort of after i wrote those scenes i would share them with my writing groups um which was incredibly <laughs> meta and a, little bit, a little bit like obnoxious you know i was like hey guys let's uh let's talk about this scene where i talk about our writing um but they they had well one i think they thought it was hilarious but also you know it, it is a vulnerable moment to share work with another person regardless of whether or not you're a writer like sometimes even my friends ask me if i will look over a professional email from them and it's vulnerable to see the way that someone expresses themselves in writing and there's something about it that just 
you know, it shows stuff that we want to keep hidden um, mm. in ways that we wouldn't necessarily mm. even expect. So yeah, it doesn't have to be a fellow fiction writer. It's it's literally just sometimes in the emails I'm helping my friends uh, write to their bosses or or the text they're trying to write to their love interests. It's just all there and and uh, and it's exciting <laughs> to see it, what what's unsaid and what's said. And it's such a great like plot conceit because it allows you know for this sort of forced vulnerability where you know there's so much is as you say uncovered that maybe was not intended to be and that ends up being such an important thing for the for the book mm. sometimes i worry about the dying art of plotting in serious literature or so-called serious literature i worry no longer this is <laughs> such an expertly plotted book I found myself literally sweating at various times while reading it. And I even shouted at once, willing <laughs> Naomi not to dig her cavernous hole of deceit any deeper. How did you structure the plot so that the reader is always on edge, but without giving away too much of the novel's climactic turn of events? Well, I love that you assume that I had a real idea of how to structure it because <laughs> I will admit I, you know, just I lie to me. <laughs> I forget who said this quote, but it's something about um, like you're driving on a road and your headlights are only illuminating like a couple of feet ahead of you, and that's how writing can be, and that is absolutely mm. how I feel when I'm writing. And mm -hmm. I mean, I had the premise so early on, like I knew it was a stalker story. I knew that it was going to keep escalating and keep escalating until the point of no return. So I knew it had to sort of blow up in some way, but I think, I think just having that premise allowed me to, at least if I didn't know what was going to happen, I knew that some things had to keep happening and I knew that there were beats of escalation that I had to hit. Um, and I think that kept me, that kept me really focused on, you know, even if I was going off on a tangent in a scene and I, I was just, you know, filling it with dialogue and, and they weren't necessarily talking about anything that felt weighted or suspenseful. I knew, okay, like every, every scene there together, something has to escalate in some way. And a lot of this did come about in revision. I mean, I had a great editor, I had great, uh, great readers in my MFA program that helped me sort of figure out what I was really trying to do and what I was trying to say. And I never want to pretend like I wrote this in a vacuum. Like I've had so many people um, you know, discuss the intricate plot points with me. And I'm just so grateful for like everyone who's had a hand in, in bringing this, bringing this book to the world. But, um, yeah, I feel like ultimately I didn't think I was a great plotter either because <laughs> for one, I'd written short stories for so long and you can sort of get away with a little bit more in a short story in terms of, you know, you need an arc obviously, but, mm -hmm. um, you don't need to sustain it for as long as it's sustained in a novel. And, and I was yeah, definitely, it's a very different arc for sure. Yeah. And like, I respect them both and love writing short stories still um, and love reading them. But yeah, I would say that like over time, the structure just kind of revealed itself to me. And I wish I had a more specific, I wish I had something more tangible to, to say about it, but I think it was just knowing, okay, it has to escalate, it has to escalate. Um, and just going with that and seeing, and seeing what came up. That may void this next question a little bit in terms of only seeing that little bit of highway in front of you, but 
I I really felt like when I got to the end that I needed to go back and look for what kind of breadcrumbs you had left because there's this wonderful swerve in the in the plotting and I I felt like I've found some things that you had put in as you know a tiny little little um, breadcrumbs along the way for us to find but may, maybe that just came about in the editing process or maybe I'm totally deluding myself. No, you're not deluding yourself. Um, it, it's true. I mean, I actually love hearing people's theories. A lot of people have come to me and said, okay, like, I think this was the moment where the jig was up. Uh, and <laughs> everyone has like really, really great explanations for why they believe everything. And usually I'm like, wow, you're right. Like, I didn't even know it's totally that scene. Um, and, but this is all to say that I think, I think a lot of it did come out in the revision process, but in a way, like, it felt like sometimes the breadcrumbs came first, as in, I was going back and rereading what I had already written and thought, okay, like this particular interaction feels really charged or feels like a live wire in some way. Like, how can I activate this later? Or how can this come up again later? So sometimes I would write something that I didn't initially intend to be a breadcrumb, but I, when I'm, I would go back and revisit it, I'd be like, whoa, you know, something, something's here um, that I need to revisit in later scenes and sort of create this callback somehow. Um, and then others were, of course, done in revision where I'd already written the denouement. And then my editor was like, okay, but we need to clarify how Rosemary figured this out or how Naomi did this or did that. Um, so a lot of it was almost like a big literary murder board, like moving the pieces <laughs> around and trying to figure out um what went where and and when it was too soon to reveal this little detail um mm. but yeah i mean it was fun like i think that's the best part about revision and i will admit i think i prefer revision to drafting i mean i think that every writer has a preference and obviously there's something so thrilling about writing in the first draft when you're really in it but i prefer to have the the pieces <laughs> and mm -hmm. then move them around and play with them and and so i think honestly the revision was a really exciting time for me trying to put all those pieces together and create my own create breadcrumbs for my future self a murder board makes a lot of sense because it it does feel like there's you, you were being very careful whether in revision or in first draft about what to reveal and and when and i can imagine if you had it sort of you know laid out and that way you could structure things um really deliberately but in the reading of course it feels quite natural which is the beauty of of literature it's incredibly crafted and yet the good stuff feels um like it just emerged from your head um like athena from zeus <laughs> i'm glad you think so there's a lot of intertexts i feel like swirling around under the surface of a novel obsession both film and text while you aren't alluding to it directly i feel like it's almost impossible to write about this kind of literary obsession that folds over into romantic pseudo-sexual um occasionally murderous obsession without invoking um, Nabokov's pale fire. Hmm. Would you be willing to share some of the cinema and fiction that influenced your novel, not Nabokov or not, um, <laughs> and uh, whether it was direct or sort of ambience based? 
Yeah, I mean, I will admit to not having read Pale Fire, which is a very, very bad on my on my part. But I think I've been no, so intimidated no. by it. Um, so many people have recommended it to me. But I think every time I sit down to pick it up, I just I can't do it. Um, but I think this is going to finally push me over the edge. Because yeah, I've definitely heard that that comparison before. And it is such a classic. And I, I know I'll love it if I just dig in. So um, I think you is, will. I, and I think you'll find um, lots of, you know, interesting dialogue between yours and Pale Fire. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, but no, I mean, you you have a good good instinct about the fact that I, I was thinking about a lot of things, at least indirectly. Um, I don't think I had, I mean, I know a lot of writers before they begin to write, sit down with a pile of books, either to just get in the mood, get in the tone. Um, and then, you know I, know, I have friends who read their favorite lines before they begin writing to sort of infuse them with that um, that rhythm. But I sort of, you know, when I sit down to write, I lock everyone and everything out. But obviously things creep in that I've experienced or encountered. And I would say, you know, a very formative time for me in terms of the book, you know, the book's premise coming together and finding that voice and finding that tone was right after I'd graduated from college, actually. And one of the uh, short story collections that my professor, Brian Hurt, had um, recommended to me at the time was The Girl in the Flammable Skirt by Amy Bender, which I love and return to frequently, um, specifically a, uh, a story called Call My Name, which is incredibly short, like can be read in 15 minutes. Um, and it's about a woman who follows a man home off the train uh, in a beautiful dress and asks, and he basically asks to like cut the dress off her, but nothing else happens. And it's just this incredibly charged, mm. incredibly weird vignette, like moment in time between these two people that have very different agendas, have very different desires in the moment. And they're sort of uh, bumping up against one another in this really interesting way. Um, and the voice is so wry and so funny. Um, so I mean, I loved that story. And I feel like I will always come back to that as, as something that really sparked this idea of like, following your base impulses without thinking first is sort of the, the, the leaping before you look, um, which I love so much in that story. And yeah, I, that was actually my, my staff pick when I was a bookseller. Uh, I was uh, trying to make everyone read this book. So clearly I'm continuing to do that. Um, I haven't but... <laughs> read it and I'm definitely going to, I'll seek it out. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Um, like the first sentence is, I'm spending the afternoon auditioning men, which immediately mm. I was like, let's go. <laughs> um, uh, but also, I mean, this might seem almost cliche, but Hitchcock's Rear Window, like mm. obsessed with that movie. Mm -hmm. I went through a Hitchcock phase um, with my family back in high school where we just marathoned them all. And I just feel like that sense of, of observing and then wanting to involve yourself in what you observe, even though it has nothing to do with you, um, definitely colored like the things that I was thinking about as I wrote. Um, also, I mean, you didn't say you said cinema and literature specifically, but I mean, I guess plays are literature. And I also um, saw Private Lives by Noel Coward when I was in Ireland with my brother and we just kind of got spontaneous tickets to the show. And literally the first scene is about um, these two these two couples that are recently divorced from one another and are now with their new partners. And they coincidentally end up in the same hotel on their honeymoon <sighs> and like old attractions bubble up. And it's just, it's hilarious, it's poignant. It's incredibly so incisive. Yeah, it's amazing. I was just in complete, like, 
I was in complete shock and elation the entire time I was watching it because it just it hit on a lot of things I was thinking about at the time. Um, and I definitely recommend catching it whenever it whenever it's staged again. I'm sure you can probably find like excerpts on YouTube. But um, mm. and then finally, this is a long list, but The Infatuations by Javier Marias. Um, oh, Marias is, is Marias, so yeah. <laughs> amazing. He's I, I think he's like one of the genius writers of our time. I'm absolutely obsessed with him. I've pretty much read everything he's written, um, but the infatuations is still my favorite. Once again, it's, you know, it starts with a woman like observing a couple and thinking that they're perfect and thinking that, you know, everything, everything that you see externally is absolutely not what's happening internally and not what's happening below the surface. And, you know, it just, it becomes this like incredibly metaphysical journey through, you know, what story is, um, what memory is. And yeah, just I think that the tone of that as well, and the style really stuck with me as I was writing. So all very different books and different mediums. But yeah, another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Those are awesome influences. And, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of it, you know, first thing. But now that you say the Marias, it's, it, it is such a nice match in some ways, kind of tonally and interests um, to your own to your own work. But those are really fun to now have in my head as I'm yeah. thinking back over the over the book. The question that you raise in the book, but also that is just kind of generally in our in our ethos about what can or should be sacrificed at the altar of writing comes to us again and again in a novel obsession, often in the voice of Naomi's grandmother, who reminds her constantly that, quote, your writing takes precedence over everything. There's a long history of artists sacrificing themselves bodily, psychologically, and otherwise. If good art can come from a bad place, might the sacrifice be worth it? Yeah, it's a tricky question, right? Because I don't want to just tell listeners to go do something crazy um, <laughs> and uncalled for to create art. But, you know, and, and I think it's a question that, you know, and all artists have been grappling with forever. Like what what makes an experience worth it? And, you know, at the fear of, of being reductive, I just do think that what's so wonderful about loving to write and wanting to write is that every experience can be retold and reclaimed and rewritten um, to, you know, cast something in a different light. And it doesn't necessarily negate the horrors of whatever has happened to you or whatever has happened to someone you know. Um, but it does sort of give you a second try. I mean, you're not going to relive it, but it sort of allows it to take on a new life and for it to mean something. If it didn't mean anything, like sometimes the worst part of um, the sacrifices we make is that it doesn't lead anywhere or it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and I think writing, you know, you can literally create new meanings out of something that has happened. Um, and I find that incredibly liberating uh, on the page. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that 
if one has sacrificed something or has led to inadvertently or just feels that they must for whatever reason, I think even separately from the fact that you can write about it, I think writing about it is a choice one can make or, you know, or crafting art in, in any capacity, in any medium is a choice we can make to make the sacrifice worth it. I don't mm. think it always does, but I think it's possible and there's potential. And I think I'll always be sort of trying to do that. I mean, if anything ever you know, happens that I'm not super thrilled about, I will probably at some point be compelled to write about it and try to try to change, change the story or change at least what it means to me and what it can mean in the future. You took that in a very recuperative way, which I really <laughs> like and, and think that's a, a very hopeful and, and lovely way to think about writing. I'll say that it's been a great relief to me as a literary critic that we have less and less conversations about likability and relatability in literary characters, although that's not necessarily true in college teaching, where students like to mm -hmm. hang on to the characters they love in a very personal way. But what interests me much more are the ways that unlikable and badly behaved characters inveigle themselves into our empathetic imaginations, causing us to make excuses for their terrible actions. Even at her most despicable, I was all in with Naomi as our protagonist. How did you go about making such a lovable bad girl character? I'm glad you describe her that way because I've definitely heard her described in many different ways at this point. Um, and you know, I'm sure some people <laughs> hate her. Um, oh yeah, but in a fascinated hatred kind yeah. of way. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard the phrase like someone, you know, Naomi, someone you hate to love, um, <laughs> which you know is is not is completely fair. Um, and yeah, there are people that are like, I hate her, so I can't read this. And, you know, power to them for reading about characters that they only love and, and only feel are like morally upright. And I've always been drawn as a reader to characters who are immensely morally uh, flawed and morally ambiguous. Um, because I think like we're all a little bit morally ambiguous. You, you know, none of us have perfect moral codes. It's just, it would be an insane thing to even claim that one does. Um, you know, you'd hope that like, we're, we're all going to sort of uh, stick to, you know, the same moral code that is required of us in like our social lives, and we're not going to kill anyone or <laughs> Naomi doesn't kill anyone. But, um, but, you know, I think we all wrong each other all the time in ways that we don't choose to don't want to, but it just happens. Um, and I think with Naomi, she has I don't think she wants to hurt anyone, but she absolutely does. And she's sort of okay with it, which in a way does make her deplorable that she is choosing, she's choosing to hurt these people for um, like, as a means to an end rather than really considering um, how they're going to be affected by it in the long run, like the traumas that she's inflicting on other people and ultimately on herself as well. I mean, I think, you can't hurt another person without being hurt yourself um, unintentionally. And so I was actually thinking about this a lot recently because I just finished a galley of either or um, by Elif Badaman. Oh, and no, yeah, yeah, I know. I feel like <laughs> I don't want to rub it in, but um, I did just get it and flew through it just because I love the idiot so much. And, you know, it felt like one of those. It felt almost like a Harry Potter at the night moment. Like I was mm. I opened it as soon as it arrived. Um, I was so excited. And she talks a lot, you know, I, I don't think this is a spoiler in any way, but um, 
she talks a lot about Kierkegaard and like the aesthetic versus ethical life, um, which mm -hmm. I hadn't really like known about before. Or at least I had never heard it described exactly as that. Um, and it really resonated with me uh, in my own life, but also just specifically as it relates to my character. Um, and as I understand it, like the aesthetic life is lived when an individual relates only to themselves and like seeks out experiences of beauty and pleasure and is sort of a hedonist, whereas the ethical life is lived when an individual relates and like defines themselves via other people and tries to live a life of duty and serve others and just care about others and put others before they before themselves, which I think is like something we all aspire to be. Like we all want to believe we are caring, compassionate people who put others before ourselves. And many people I know are that, like are just beautiful human beings who, you know, do care so much about others. And like, I like to think of myself as someone who cares a lot about others as well. And I'm sure Naomi would like to think of herself in that way. But at the end of the day, what are you going to prioritize when you want something really desperately? Are you going to prioritize that ethical life or are you going to sort of debase yourself in some way and pursue the aesthetic life? And I think, you know, according to Kierkegaard, it, all, all those forms like the aesthetic and the ethical are both attempts to escape how how filled with despair we all are at the end of the day sorry this is getting really um dark but i just think you know we all have like our coping mechanisms and our ways of going about our lives and achieving what we want and and i think that naomi has chosen the aesthetic life and that is almost like a nicer spin on it i think a lot of people would use choicier words to describe the life that she is choosing to live but i don't know as i was reading either or i was like yes like this is naomi this is naomi and i think that's my favorite part of reading is when I'm reading something and it, you know, I sort of recognize something about it in my own characters, in my own life. Um, and it kind of gave me this way to articulate my character, which is crazy. Like, I, I don't know how I would have articulated a few weeks ago if I hadn't read this and, and been able to talk about it with you. But uh, that's sort of, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to make her a woman you love to hate. And that's because she's living the aesthetic life. She is also you know, very kind to her grandmother and at times to her her family. And so she she maintains aspects of of an ethical life. Mm -hmm. And there are times where we see that she could very seemingly easily be pushed in in a direction in which she would kind of tip over into less of that aesthetic only life. Um, but yet, you know, well, she's much more interesting because she doesn't get that, <laughs> that push. Uh, but I do like that way of conceiving of her as, well, would we say an art monster? Then? Yeah. And I think she's absolutely obsessed with the ethical life. Like, I think she wants so desperately to be someone who would live an ethical life. I think she's constantly like overthinking what she's doing and, and kind of apologizing to the reader in a sense. I think she's always aware that what she's doing is unethical and you know is somewhat tortured about it but at the same time <laughs> at the end of the day like you know actions speak louder than words and she does she does do these things and 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 pursue her bad behavior so but it's it's true that like i don't think anyone is ever one or the other it's just we're all sort of everything at once that yeah that's a nice way of putting it so there is a lot of sex in your novel, good sex, bad sex, sexy sex, ugly, <laughs> abusive, violent sex. Sex for Naomi is both, as I read it, a kind of drug, an opiate 
to the ever-present buzz of jealousy that vibrates through her, and I do mean that to be a reference to the incredibly uncomfortable scene in which Naomi plays with Rosemary's vibrator in her bedroom. And it's a tool, something she uses to cleave men to her. How did you go about writing or wading into the different kinds of sexual politics that come up in the book? And do you have fun writing the sex scenes? I'll start with the second question because absolutely I do have fun writing the sex scenes, mostly because, you know, I've never really been interested in, I, I think you described some of the scenes as like sexy sex scenes, which is great and funny because I think I've always, you know, had the most fun writing the really awkward, ugly, <laughs> um, strange sex scenes, just because I think those are the more common ones that one encounters if mm -hmm. you're, if you're lucky, because then it, all this material, but no, I think yeah, I just think like sex is so much a part of how you can build a character. And even, you know, like the absence of sex speaks volumes as well. If you're reading a book where a character doesn't think about it, doesn't talk about it, doesn't do it, like that's going to be a presence, uh, you know, of its own. And that I would also find fascinating. But I think with a character like Naomi, who I think you described it so beautifully, you know, that she cleaves men to her in that way. And I think that's absolutely true. The obvious answer to that would probably be that she doesn't believe that she is like worthy of love and mm -hmm. sex is sort of a cheap, like alternative. And in the moment she can feel like she's receiving love, but at the same time, like because she's not fully present in it ever, really, she doesn't have to sort of put herself on the line and be vulnerable. And I think so often sex is about vulnerability. And so I think so much of it, you know, is inauthentic in a lot of ways, because she's trying to figure out how to be present and how to sort of accept the parts of her that she's offering up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I mean, of the sexual politics, like, I definitely didn't go into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a book about sexual politics, or I didn't go into it. Um, just conceiving it of in that conceiving of it in that way but you know i wanted to show how you know for so many women it does feel like that is the first thing we can offer someone um and we're afraid that perhaps they won't want to you know peek behind the curtain and see everything else you can mm -hmm. offer Mm -hmm. um, and there's something almost protective about that. Just saying, here, I'm going to give you this thing that I know you want. And like, I know you want it. And I know you might not want to peek behind the curtain. And you can sort of protect yourself by by pretending like you don't really care. And I think that's something that Naomi continually does until, you know, she meets Caleb and he sort of calls her out for that and doesn't let her get away with that that moment where she sort of drifts away and, and doesn't become present anymore. And he keeps sort of picks up on that. And I think... That is one of the reasons why she feels like he's someone she could love because he's he's someone who's unwilling to kind of participate in that charade with her. And I think mm -hmm. she's been wanting to be seen in that way and wanting someone to say, like, fuck that. You know, I'm <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to participate in this. But, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like I I'm glad you asked this question because, you know, I haven't really talked about it very much uh, yet. So, yeah, and it's important to me. It's important to me, the themes and, and the ways that she engages in these experiences. One of the most heartbreaking moments is when, and she says this at least twice, I think, when when she comments that after, you know, the the second time that she has sex with someone, that's when they will like abandon her or never, you know, never call again. And it's just a moment where we really do, we find ourselves very empathetic um, with her and sympathetic. And, you know, the other thing is that Naomi 
is connected sexually to people in a way that's inextricable from her inability to have children. And how does that non-reproductivity relate to her need in your mind to produce something lasting, like art that lasts beyond you, but also to hold on to Caleb at all costs? Yeah, in Naomi's case, I feel like she, she can't really untangle those two things and they absolutely relate to one another. Um, I feel like, you know, when you reach a certain age as a woman, and she's she's only 24, 25 in the book, so she's not yet being confronted by, uh, you know, everyone around her, um, you know, having the, the conventional life and having a child and getting married. And, you know, that's a life that most people do want and for good reason. Uh, and she you know, she's kind of locked out of that and she hasn't really processed that. And she's not even sure if she did ever want it, but she, she never really got the chance to know if she wanted it or not. So I think in a sense, like she's put all of her eggs in one basket in terms of (laughs) what she can accomplish and, and what she can leave behind. And, you know, with her grandmother being a writer and really encouraging her and, and knowing that she herself, Naomi, herself is sort of her grandmother's legacy, although her grandmother also got to be a writer um, and got to leave mm-hmm. behind works of art. But she also got to have children and and Naomi's sort of living evidence of that. And so I think Naomi feels like insecure about a lot of things in the book. But I think one of those major things is like, what, what will I leave behind? Like, how will people remember me? And who will love me? Because I think so many people do do realize like when they have children that you know it's a totally different kind of love that you're suddenly blessed with or or you know maybe it's not maybe it's not always there i mean i was definitely like a horror as a teenager um and probably didn't tell my parents i love them enough i love you guys but (laughs) but i think you know she is confronting this this very like her own mortality in a sense and so her writing is like her way to be many different people and 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 live in different kinds of lives um, and leave something behind. So I hope that answers your question. It does very much. By the time I finished a novel obsession, I'd begun to think of it as at least in part a social media novel. Much of Naomi's wickedness is possible because of social media's lowering of our inhibitions about sharing our private lives without with others. The decoding of our intimates' lives on social media has become the great romantic pastime for a good portion of the world. You do not appear particularly sanguine about the mm-hmm. uses and abuses of social media. Did you specifically want to take a hatchet to the illusions and deceptions that we you know, prevaricate in our many hours online? Or is it just so baked into our everyday experiences that to avoid it is a kind of deceptiveness of its own? I think definitely both. Um, because for one, and I think this comes up in the book, it does seem like it's very hard to avoid being online in, in any possible way. I mean, if you're not on Facebook, maybe you have a Twitter. If you're not on Instagram, maybe you have a TikTok. Like there's, there's at this point to choose to be offline and kind of um, undiscoverable is more rare uh, than, you know, than its opposite. So I think in a sense, I wanted to just capture contemporary life uh, the way that I see it, the way that I experience it. Um, And so I didn't want to avoid it because I I just didn't feel like I could be writing authentically if I avoided it. Um, But I, you know, I wanted to also point out that, you know, Caleb in, 
in the book, he is not on social media. Like he has a sort of ancient Facebook account and he emails, but um, other than that, he's not active on social media at all. And like, I think Naomi That's is right. freaked, freaked out that. by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's definitely like a sort of part of his personality um, and his, his need for privacy and just his sort of, I don't know, quietude. Um, whereas Naomi's a bit more manic and she likes this, the way that she can be performative on social media and likes the way that she can sort of craft her identity both on the page and on Instagram. Um, but I, yeah, I think in a way, like I rely on social media in so many ways in my own life. And I think it's brought a lot of positivity into my life, a lot of online community, especially, you know, over the past two years, like not being able to see my friends as often as I would like connecting with other debut authors that I'll probably never meet, but have sort of struck up this really lovely rapport with on social media. But at the same time, absolutely, there's a dark side. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely unavoidable as well. Uh, and and to write about social media, it would be almost irresponsible not to also call out the ways that it can be really destructive and toxic. And, you know, there's so many ways in which we can take advantage of the things that people share. And obviously, Naomi is <laughs> proof of that. Um, she takes advantage of literally everything she finds. Uh, <laughs> it's a horrifying, <laughs> horrifying effect. But, you know, it does occur to me, and I wrote this into the book, but it still it boggles my mind that I and others will, like, broadcast where we are at the moment to you know our public instagrams like oh i'm mm -hmm. at this restaurant like come find me it's almost like a challenge you know hopefully people are not naomi and do not literally do that <laughs> but um but it's crazy i mean i think it, it it's no longer at the back of people's minds that that it could sort of uh, result in danger and and mm -hmm. result in you know a horrifying level of intrusion um, and we sort of invite that in without really knowing what we're inviting in, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I think that's just because we're so in it now. I mean, I got a Facebook when I was 15, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is crazy. And like, I definitely did not need a Facebook when I was 15. And anyway, um, it's very good for the teen psyche. <laughs> oh, that's God, what they've yeah. proven now. It's very, it's excellent. They, they <laughs> recommend it for all oh, teens. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't be like me. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, I think, I think it's an unavoidable topic if we're writing contemporary literature, I think. Yeah. And like I said, if, if you're choosing not to write about it, I would love to know like what that would look like if people actively avoiding it. Um, I think mm -hmm. that would be just as interesting. It's like uh, movies and TV shows that try and not have cell phones now, which I, which yeah. I like, but at the same time, it's sort of this willful nostalgia that's so unrealistic to the way that people spend their hours. Right. And sadly, you know, I agree that there was a that social media could be a gift at times during during the height of the pandemic, but I, I worry what it foretells about us going forward. But on yeah. that very light note, I would love <laughs> to um, get some recommendations from you. And I'm especially interested in books that maybe you feel like are as powerfully uh, propulsive as, as I found a novel obsession to be, but then also about books that are um, about women behaving badly, which is a genre unto its own that I think deserves more attention. Yeah, well, the women behaving badly, I mean, these are not necessarily books that came out quite recently. But when I think of like my favorite women behaving badly for various reasons books, I think immediately of Tampa by Alyssa Nutting, 
which she has, is so great oh my she's gosh amazing. she's like, such talk a, about, a weird amazing writer <laughs> yeah talk about like irredeemable yet fascinating yet somehow also i was empathizing with her like i hate to admit that but i was like wow you implicated me wholly in that book which is terrifying to me mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but she just does such a good job and i flew through that and then you know i wanted to recommend it to people but i was like what does it say about me but then i was like, <laughs> recommending it to everyone because it's just it's so good and and just i you can't recommend her. it to like your aunt no no yeah or like people with young children um, <laughs> but uh no i think i think what she pulled off is in enviable and so kudos to her um also veronica by mary gateskill um and i'll admit like i haven't loved everything mary gateskill has written but veronica i adored um absolutely adored and i think Allison, I think her name is Allison, the narrator, um, just was like one of one of the most memorable characters that I've encountered in, you know, the last few years. And I, I wouldn't say she behaves badly all the time, but there are definitely moments where she sort of leads with cruelty when she could lead with kindness. And mm -hmm. that really resonated with me because I think sometimes we just do. And oftentimes, once again, it's like coming from a wounded place and we're making a choice. And sometimes the choice is wrong, but often the choice is interesting. And I think reading about women who are cruel and, and why, you know, is, is so intriguing to me and i don't know if she's behaving badly but it's just in terms of unhinged woman falling apart um days of abandonment by elena ferrante i mean she was in a mm, sense she mm -hmm. was that the narrator was wronged um but also the way that she reacts to it is so fascinating and like she's sort of you know implicated in it as well what else? i think that's a great choice yeah, I love I love Fronte. Um, and I so it's funny, I don't know if everyone would consider this book to be propulsive, but I frankly did. And I just I love um, this writer and, and her debut came out in 2020. Charlotte McConaughey, she wrote Migrations and Once There Were Wolves. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Migrations and, is propulsive. Oh, it's so Goodness. propulsive. And like, you know, there's obviously ways in which it goes back in time and like slows down, slows down the narrative, we learn more about um, I'm forgetting her name, but we learn more about our, our central character. I, I never remember the names of characters, <laughs> but I'm like, I know I love them. But no, I so I love Migrations. It's also like one of the few books that has made me literally sob upon finishing it. And I think there's just such a release about the ending and I'm obviously not going to spoil it. But yeah, it was just such a soaring book. Like it just made me feel both devastated and also so hopeful and mm -hmm, and filled mm -hmm. with emotion. And I just think that's really hard. Like I, I oftentimes in when I'm reading when I'm reading these days, you know, I'll admire a line or I'll sort of sit with an idea or be bowled over by a scene, but I don't often feel like as many gut punch emotions as I would like. And maybe I'm reading the wrong books, but that book in particular just completely like knocked me out. Um, and it's one I also recommend. And I, I love her second one as well, but I think Migrations is my introduction to her. So it just remains, it sort of lives rent free in my brain um, and recommend it to everyone. Well, anyone who puts a flag down for migrations is a friend of this show. <laughs> so thank you for these amazing recommendations and for a wonderful conversation. Caitlin, was it was so such fun. a pleasure to talk to you. You too. I'm so, so happy that we did this and that you invited me. I loved it. It was so fun. Thank you for your amazing questions. And I wish you the best for the debut of this wonderful novel. Thank you. <laughs> it was good to talk.
Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Caitlin Barish for an engaging conversation. Links to A Novel Obsession, which is soon to be your obsession, as well as all of Caitlin's fabulous recommendations can be found at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find links to our previous episodes and the accompanying recommendations. I can't say enough about the interviews in the months to come. April will feature Fernanda Melchor in conversation with her translator, Sophie Hughes. Natasha Brown, author of the stunning first novel, Assembly, and Jennifer Egan, who will be coming on the show to talk about her newest novel, The Candy House. Don't adjust your audio, I did indeed say Jennifer Egan. Mark your calendars, and until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books